All right. Well, let's bow our heads and uh, ask the Lord to be with us now as we look at His Word. Lord, I thank you for this day. Thank you for the good news that we just sang about. I pray, Lord, that you would do a work in our hearts that we would hear it today as the best news that we could ever hear. <clears throat> that it would be so amazing and precious to us that it would truly drive out every fear on earth that we could have. Lord, if the fear of death is taken away by resurrection hope, if the fear of being punished by our Creator is taken away because of the price that Jesus paid for us, then what is there left to fear? Lord, I ask that you would help us to be a people of hope because of the gospel, the good news. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have a Bible with you or in front of you on your chairs, turn to 1 Corinthians and... We are going to be in chapter 15, and this day marks the a big moment in our journey through 1 Corinthians. We are uh, tackling the tenth and final issue that the Apostle Paul is covering in his letter to the Corinthians. So remember, the whole letter is just Paul responding to ten problems, basically, that the Corinthians were having. The first cluster of them are things that he's caught wind of that are going on, not good things, in their midst. And then in chapter 7, verse 1, he makes a shift and starts talking about things that he they've asked him about. And this is one of those things, the resurrection. So we are going to be talking about uh, this for the next few weeks. Um, this issue, really, that Paul is tackling here is probably one of the most important is the most important issue because it has to do with the very heart of what Christians like us call the gospel. Some in Corinth were denying the Christian hope of resurrection for believers. And so they're saying, well, if somebody dies, some of their, they've been Christians for a while, this church has been around for a while, and they were starting to experience Christians dying. And they were saying... Yeah, that's it. There's no resurrection of the body. They go off to the floaty place where it's going to be a lot better for them, and they get to shoot the breeze with grandma and do it. You know, kind of how a lot of people around here talk about heaven. And that's it. They're in heaven. Life after death. But they didn't have a category for life after life after death, which is resurrection life. When Jesus returns, Bodies rise like his did, and the new creation is brought to its fullness through the return of Jesus. And so what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 15 is he's saying, guys, if you say that bodies don't rise from the dead, they just go to the floaty place, that's a problem because Jesus' body rose from the dead. And if you say bodies don't rise from the dead, then Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And if you say Jesus didn't rise from the dead, I'm going to go get a different job. Because I'm wasting my time. Because if Jesus didn't rise, y'all are still in your sins. And we should be pitied as Christians. Because our religion has no hope. Um, so this is where we're going 
What Paul does at the very beginning is remind them of the good news of the gospel and that the resurrection is central to that. So let's read these verses together. We're going to be in the first 11 verses. And you can follow along the outline that I have for you on the back of the bulletin, as usual. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep fall asleep, the hopes that he'll wake up, right, in resurrection. So even here, he's starting to play his hand towards the resurrection hope of waking when Christ returns. He goes on, verse 7, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me, it was not in vain. On the contrary, it did something in my life, right? I worked harder than any of them. Though, lest you think I'm bragging, it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. So here's the main idea, the big thing that Paul's trying to get at in these verses. He says, because the gospel is the news that Christ died for our sins and rose again. That's the news. Because it's news, it's got to be preached with words, received by faith, and held onto for salvation. Because the gospel is news about what Jesus did, dying and rising, then it must be preached with words, talked about with words. It's got to be received by faith and held onto if it's going to do you any good, if it's going to save you. So there's four parts that I'll focus on this morning with us. Um, Paul's definition of the gospel in verses 3 to 8. The gospel defined. Then we'll see that the gospel is preached. It's a message. It's a word. It has content. It's got to be talked about. And then third, the gospel is received. The word about Jesus is a word that must be received with trust, faith. And then fourth and finally, the gospel saves, and I'll add, transforms sinners who trust it. So we'll jump right in. Paul's definition, the gospel is defined. In verses 3 to 8, look at this. He gives his definition of the gospel. Now, the word gospel is a word that inherently means news. 
a message, a news announcement about something. It's an announcement about something that God has done. Paul starts by saying, For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. This message, Paul says, it's of first importance. Christians can talk about many other important things. This is first. Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. If a church stops talking about that, they've lost what's of first importance. Jesus died for sins. Now, Paul says he did it according to the scriptures. According to the scriptures, Christ died for our sins. And he uses the word Christ very intentionally. Christ is not Jesus' name. Like, you know, Joel Douglas Aubrey, Jesus Christ, the son of David. He, Christ is not Jesus' middle name. Christ is a title. Like, doctor or general. Christ is a word that means the Messiah, the anointed king. And then in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament that we read, the Messiah is a divinely promised king who would be born as a man in the lineage of King David of Israel. And yet, not only would he rightfully rule David's throne over David's throne, but writers of the scriptures, the prophets, say in places like Psalm 110 that he would also reign over a heavenly throne and reign over heaven and earth. This is what the Old Testament tells us about the Messiah, the Christ. And Paul says this Christ, this ruler who would be born in David's line, this heavenly ruler and earthly ruler combined, he died for our sins. And he died for our sins not as a surprise, but according to plan. The scripture says that the Messiah would die for sins. Now, we don't have time to go to this passage in the Bible and unpack it at great length in the Old Testament. Uh, there is a sermon somewhere on Facebook where we did this. But this claim Paul makes about what the Messiah did for sins, it comes straight from the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. And when we preached through it, we dealt with quite a few, trans, what I would say, translation troubles there. And... I think that this passage, Daniel 9, 24 and 27, I've become convinced, is entirely about Jesus and what he's going to do. And so if you have any questions about that after we can work through it together uh, with, the, with the translation in front of us. But I'm going to just remind you of some of the things we saw back then in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. The Israelite prophet Daniel, he's telling us that in the days that are leaning up, leading up to the final chapter of history in the world, Daniel 9, verse 26, he says, A Messiah 
Well, some translations will say the anointed one is going to come and be cut off. And literally, this is what Daniel 9.26 says. He will be cut off and it will not be to him. And what? He'll be cut off and not to him. And, and translations go all over the place with this. But if you remember anything about our time preaching through Daniel, you might remember that I'm very convinced Jesus is being talked about here because this is a Messiah here, an anointed one. The Messiah in the book of Daniel is right here, okay? And he's going to be cut off. That's, and, and it's not going to be to him. Now, if you have a King James version, you, the old King James, it says he'll be cut off and not for himself. I think they nailed it. That's the, the sense here. It's not going to be for himself that he's being cut off. The phrase cut off is covenant curse language. And here Daniel says this Messiah, this anointed king, is going to bear the curse of being exiled into the ultimate exile, death, cut off for his people, the death that they deserve for their sins. It will not be for himself, it will be for them. And in the day that the Messiah is cut off, Daniel 24 has already set the stage about what's going to happen in this time period. God will provide atonement for his people. He'll make an end of sin. He'll bring in everlasting righteousness and later on in chapter 927, he says there's going to be this, this Messiah, he is going to be a leader. And it's still talking, and this is where the translations go all over the place. But it calls the Messiah a prince, a ruler, a leader who is to come, who will make a strong covenant with the many in that day. And I take that to be the strongest covenant of all covenants, the new covenant which Isaiah says is made for the many. This is front and center in Paul's mind when he says the Messiah was cut off for our sins, was cursed for our sins, died for our sins, same thing. According to the scriptures, he's reading Daniel 9 along with Isaiah 53 and some other passages about Jesus' death. And he's saying, this is where the, the Christ, the anointed one, dies. There's no other place in the Old Testament that says, or could it even come close to saying, the Messiah dies for sins. I think Daniel 9 is what Paul's looking at. And what is the proof that this Messiah actually died? Like, how do we know he actually died? Well, what do you do with dead people? You bury them. You bury dead people. And usually they're dead, right? Well, in this case, he's dead. The Romans are killers. They know how to do their job. He's very dead. And that's why Paul says the proof is he was buried. The Old Testament proof is this is the plan. The, the, the current proof is he died for our sins. He was buried. God's anointed king really died for our sins. Now, if Jesus just died, that's not good news. That's not gospel. He's just some dude that died in the Middle East for a drink. I mean, 
Why is that good news? Now, there's some people that would say, many liberal theologians would say, well, Jesus died as an example. An example of what? Of getting on the wrong side of the law? I mean, that, what, what's, what's a good example in the death of Jesus? He meant to die. He went to Jerusalem knowing he would die. But Jesus died for something. He died for our sins. That's the good news, but it wouldn't be good news if he just stayed dead. And so Paul gives the second half of the good news. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now that's a whole sermon in and of itself right there. Um, how do the scriptures tell us that the Messiah, this conquering king, is going to be raised on the third day? That'd be a, a whole sermon right there, but I'll just give you a sneak preview of what that sermon would look like. All throughout the Old Testament, there is a theme reverberating through the pages of third day rescues for God's people. God's people, over and over, are rescued on the third day after being tested by death or near-death experiences. This pattern of third-day deliverances from death after being tested points forward. As many of the pictures and patterns in the Old Testament point forward to Jesus, this third-day testing and then deliverance on the third day points forward to the faithful last Adam and representative of humanity who would come, God's king, and he would pass every test and prove himself utterly faithful, even to the point of death, and through death, to the other side, be raised on the third day. One key third-day resurrection pattern is the resurrection of the Israelite prophet Jonah from the fish that swallowed him. It spit him up on dry land on the third day. Day. Jesus even sees this in the Gospel of Mark. He says, uh, just like Jonah was raised on the third day, so I will, right? Another key one is the rescue of Isaac from being sacrificed by his father Abraham on the third day of their journey to the mountain where Isaac was placed on trees, on wood, same word in Hebrew, and then delivered after Abraham showed that he passed God's Test. You have a one and only son, Isaac, strapped, a beloved son, strapped to wood on a mountain and delivered on the third day, right? Uh, a third example of the pattern shows up when Israel crossed the Red Sea on dry land on the third day as the Egyptians died all around them. A fourth, that was a test for them. Are you going to trust God and go through the waters? And they were delivered. On the third day after leaving Egypt. A fourth example is when God came down on Mount Sinai in fire and cloud and smoke and an earthquake to test his people on the third day. Third day testings. Those are a huge pattern in the Bible. And we can keep going. Leading to the ultimate third day test. The three day test of Jesus where he's tested in the grave in death for three days. Would the Father come through for him? Would God deliver him as he delivered Isaac on the third day so long ago? Or Jonah or Israel at the Red Sea? Is God going to come through on the third day? And he did. 
He raised his faithful son, Jesus, on the third day, never to die again. Christ was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, the pattern laid out in the scriptures, that if you know them well, is of course he's going to be raised on the third day. That's the gospel. That's the good news. A human paid for your sins by undergoing a death you deserve. A punishment you should have experienced. A human man died and was raised forever, defeating death. Well, what's the proof, Paul? Prove it. I know the Bible says that's going to be the pattern. I know you're saying that's the pattern. What's the proof? Just like you needed proof that he was buried, so Paul gives you some proof. He says, um, ask those who saw it. Verse 5. He appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared bodily, right, to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. Most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Paul, people saw Jesus. That's the proof. Hundreds at once. This is not some mystic private hallucination in a cave somewhere in the Middle East. No. People saw him together. Most of them are still living, says Paul. Go talk to them. They know what they saw. They know who they touched. They saw the scars. They watched him break bread and eat fish with them. They listened to his final sermons over 40 days. And they watched him ascend bodily into the clouds of heaven as Daniel 7 had predicted he would. And Paul himself, he says, was the last to see Jesus. Though much later and a bit different than the others, he says. It was a bit abnormal. He saw Jesus in a vision, but he saw it. As he was riding his horse to drag Christians off to prison, Jesus met Paul. Jesus stopped Paul. Jesus changed his life. So Paul says, my birth into Christianity, it was special. It wasn't a normal one. I was born again a little different, right? I, but I did see Jesus. Okay, so he's not, he's, he's separating his encounter with the living Christ with some of the others. I'm living proof, he says, that Jesus was alive, that he was raised, that he is on the throne, that the guy I saw up there has a body, a resurrected body. Heaven opened and I saw him and I heard him. Now, in a minute, we'll look at how Paul explains in verses 9 to 11 that his own transformed life is proof that the resurrection of Jesus really happened. But I, what I want to do is circle back and just make a couple observations about the gospel as we've now defined it. We've seen the gospel defined as Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, the gospel must be preached. This is point two this morning. The gospel is preached. Listen to how Paul starts off this section, okay? He says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you believed in vain. 
So two times here, Paul says the gospel is a word, not one word, but think like a message, a message that's preached. To preach something is to like herald it, like a herald would blow a trumpet, the king has a message for everyone, hear ye, hear ye. That's where the word preach gets its origination, right? It's an idea of herald something. Like you run into the room and you say, the donuts are ready! <laughs> yes! Good news! If you like donuts. Okay, that's a herald's message. The gospel is heralded. It's announced. Jesus died and rose again. That's news. Paul says, verse 11 again, this is what we preach. There's a phrase that's gotten really popular these days, and I wonder if you guys have ever heard it. Maybe raise your hand if you've heard it. It says, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. You ever heard somebody say that? It says, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. Now, when people say that, what they mean usually is that our lives, the way that you and I choose to live as Christians, they have the potential to preach to people about Jesus, to communicate something about Christianity silently to people. Like, people watch how we live and they say, whoa, that looks like, that looks good. And it preaches to people. Now, Christians might say things like, your life is the only sermon people will ever listen to. So, shine the light for Jesus. Or they'll say, I shared the gospel with that family by just treating them Kindly and nice. Now, I, I really do appreciate the heart behind what's trying to be communicated by that phrase. I'm not trying to just completely bash it. But I think it's a very unhelpful way to talk about the gospel. The gospel is news about who Jesus is. The gospel says Jesus died and rose again. For sins. It's not news about what people have done or are doing. The gospel is not our good deeds, our being nice. People who don't know Jesus at all and do not believe the gospel at all and completely reject Jesus totally can be very, very kind and nice and generous and good in some ways. Are they preaching the gospel? No. No. They're not. Preaching the gospel is not the good things that people do, that you and I do. And if we Christians, if we fail to do good things that Jesus calls us to do, our lack of love, it's not as what's uh, Richard Stearns, I think is his name, the founder of World Vision, great organization, he wrote a book called The Hole in Our Gospel. And it's like, there's this great, beautiful, glorious gospel, and he says there's a big hole in it. And what's the hole? He says the hole is that Christians who believe the gospel aren't living like Christians. That's a hole in the gospel. And I say, yes, Richard, that's a problem, brother. That's a problem. I see it in my life and I see it in all our lives and we want to grow in our understanding and our Christian living. But that's not a hole in the gospel. You want to know what? The hole in the gospel is the empty tomb. That's the only hole in our gospel. An empty one where Jesus is not. He's on the throne. There's no holes in the gospel. 
It's done. It's finished. It's news. It's only news. It's an announcement. How can it be deficient? It's not about what we're doing. Preach the gospel, as has been many, said many times. Um, just I don't even remember who said it first. Saying preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words, is like saying feed poor people and hungry people, and if necessary, use food. No. You need food if you're going to feed somebody. You need words if you're going to preach the gospel. It's good news, regardless of how terrible and sinful Christians live. It better be good news because we are broken and sinful. And we fail as God's people many times. We need a news that's bigger than us. That's beautiful even when we mess up so that we can all run to it together. So the gospel is the news about what God has done. In a world where headline after headline after headline is bad news, including bad news about bad Christians who failed and maybe aren't even Christians, you can read about that on the news, right? But we have good news. A king who died in and this good news that Paul preaches, that we're called to talk about with our words, it must be received it's, if it's going to do you any good. That's the third observation from these verses. The gospel is received. You see that in verse 1? The Corinthians received the gospel, and they now stand in it. And Paul himself also received the gospel. We see that in verse 3. He says that he preached to them what he himself has received. And what he received from the scriptures and from seeing Jesus, he received this message that Christ died and rose again. Now, how do you receive something? Well, if you receive a package, you receive it by taking it and opening it, right? If you receive some money, you receive it by taking it and putting it in your bank, or spending it right away. If you hear an announcement, you receive an announcement that, let's say, your dad has suddenly passed away. You receive that tragic news by either believing it or maybe refusing to believe it and trying to confirm if that was really true. All news that you hear calls for a response to the news. Do I receive it or do I reject it? Fake news. How will we respond to the news? How will we react? How will we receive it? That's the same with the message about Jesus. We're called to receive the news in the Bible by believing it, trusting it. In verse 1, the gospel Paul preached was received. In verse 11, if you look, it is believed. Receiving the good news of the gospel and believing the good news of the gospel, it's the same thing. You receive it by trusting it, by believing it. The announcement of Jesus' resurrection for sinners is a message to be received by faith, by believing it's true, by trusting it in such a way so that it actually affects you. That's why Paul says that Corinthians are to stand in the gospel. 
You see that back there? It, what you receive in which you currently are standing? If you stand in a boat, it's because you trust that that boat is going to keep you afloat. If you stand on a bridge, it's because you trust that that bridge is going to hold you and get you to where you want to go. The Corinthians have received the gospel by faith. And verse 1 says they stand in it because they're relying on it. They're trusting it. They're putting the whole weight of their allegiance behind it. And if they aren't really standing on it, Paul says, if they're not holding firmly, if they're drifting from its message, how do you drift if you deny it, if they're disbelieving it, if they're not really trusting it anymore? Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. I'll just hedge my bets and say, well, maybe Jesus did this for me. Then they actually believed in vain. You ever done something in vain? No? Try to think of an example think of an illustration of it. Doing something in vain. You, you like worked super, super hard on something because, you know, you thought it was, you, you tried for like six hours to fix your car because you thought you could, right? And then when the final piece, the moment of truth comes and you turn the key, it was all in vain. And now you're six hours less and maybe you bought some money. Yeah, you spent money on what you thought was going to fix the problem. And you did it in vain. Paul says, don't believe in vain. Empty faith. Faith that's just a head knowledge and not actually standing on anything. Not actually receiving and believing Christ in the gospel. So Paul here is saying, um, you don't receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't receive it and believe it by holding Jesus at arm's length so that you can do whatever the heck you want with your life and still go to heaven. That's not receiving the gospel. Receiving it is standing on it. Standing in. Letting it support you. The gospel that Christians receive by faith is a gospel that saves us and transforms us if we continue to hold on to it not drifting, and stand on it. This is point four this morning. The gospel saves and transforms sinners. First, we'll see in verse two that receiving the gospel about Jesus saves us. Look at verses one to two. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this good news, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. See that? Hold tight. The rope to rescue you isn't going to save you if you don't grab it. You've got to hold it. It saves. The gospel saves if you receive it. Otherwise, you would believe in vain. What does it mean to be saved? What do we need to be rescued from? Paul doesn't spell it, spell it all out here. Ultimately, it means we're rescued from being punished from our own sins. And rebellion against God, our creator. The gospel saves you if you trust it because it deals with our greatest problem. Our sin. Our sin against God is our greatest problem in life, whether we see it or not. And the gospel rescues us from ourselves and from our 
rebellion and rejection of the Lord. This is good news for those who want to have a relationship with the Creator. The Gospel fixes what gets in the way. Jesus, our Creator, dies in our place that we might find life in Him. And the news not only saves us, but change, it changes us. It transforms us who truly believe it and stand on it and hold it firmly. In our passage this morning, the Apostle gives his own life as an example of how the good news about God's gift, how God's grace to him in sending Jesus transformed his life. So if you look at verses 9 and 10 with me, Paul says, I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. See that? When Paul looks at his own life, he's like, I don't even deserve to be a Christian, let alone a leader of Christians, because I hurt other Christians. He says, I persecuted Christians before I became one. I, he helped people get murdered. Paul helped Christians die before he came to know Christ. He was a blasphemer against Jesus and a violent man, he says elsewhere. But, verse 10, he says, by the grace, the word grace, at its very core meaning, what does grace mean? Grace is a word that inherently means gift. So, under the Christmas tree, you could say, I'm giving gifts, or you could say, I'm giving grace. Okay? And there's different ways that we can use grace. Sometimes we give grace to people that deserve it. A gift to people that deserve it. But God's grace is always to the undeserving in the Bible. And Paul says that. By grace, God's grace to me, his gift to me, I am what I am. And his grace, his gift, was not without effect. It was, God's grace wasn't in vain. It actually impacted his life. He says, I worked harder than... All of them, all the other apostles, yet not I, but the grace of God, the gift of God with me. So for Paul, this wasn't boasting. It's just stating a fact. He's pointing out that it was God who did it through him. God's gracious gift to him, the empowering strength of Christ and Christ's spirit with Paul, had transformed him into a bold and tireless missionary on Jesus' behalf. He traveled all over the ancient world, telling about the Lord planting churches, training leaders, going in and out of jail after jail after jail, being shipwrecked, being beat up, being stoned, left for dead, beaten with rods, time without number. Paul was tireless. Why? Because of the gift of God that was with him, the grace of Jesus. By the grace of God, I am what I am. I work harder than any other missionary the world has ever seen, but not I. But the gift of God that was with me, that I received by faith. So as we sum up, I'll say the main point again. Because the gospel is the news that Christ died for our sins and rose again, it must be preached with words, received by faith, and held onto for salvation. And when you truly receive it and stand on it and hold firmly to it, and the more firmly you hold it, the, the more it starts to have an effect on you like it affected Paul. 
So here's three ways for application that the gospel starts to affect us more and more as we stand up. First, the fact of the gospel, the fact that the gospel is a news that just is received, you have to receive it, that works humility in us. Jesus died in our place and paid for our wrongdoing. And he rose, defeating death for us, because we couldn't do that. We don't work to make the gospel true. We receive it by faith. We don't receive the gospel because we feel like we're really pretty decent, good people, and we want to just become better people, like a self-improvement project. We don't receive the gospel because, well, I just want God to like me, so I'm going to just nod my head to Jesus. Yep. No, the gospel is something you simply receive because you see you're a sinner and you need it. It's offered freely to you because you are in massive debt. We are born into massive debt to our Creator. We cannot pay back. And that's a humbling thing, truly. The grace of God found in the gospel is a gift. And ultimately, the grace gift of the gospel is Christ to us. That's what it means when we're saved by grace. We're saved by a gift, by God's gift. And just because we receive the gospel and someone else doesn't receive it, it doesn't mean that we're suddenly a better person than they are. It means we're sinners who've had our eyes open and we've seen that we need it. We need saving. So receiving the good news about Jesus should be the most humbling experience that we've ever had and that continues to humble us every day. We're not Christians because we're better. We're Christians because we saw that we weren't and we needed rescue. And this good news of the gospel also gives hope. What do you put your hope in in life? What are you hoping for right now that you feel like is going to make your life maybe a little bit better? What about the future? Do you hope in the next week, the next month, the next year? I hope this is going to make my life more improved or better. Do you have hope? Do you have hope in yourself that you'll be a better person tomorrow or, in ne or next year? I'll be better than I am today. Do you have hope in other people that... Maybe they'll change. They'll be nicer to me next year than they were this year. That my relationship problems are going to be better next year. We might have all sorts of hope, right? But no hope in this life is certain. No hope is certain except the gospel. The gospel of Jesus is a certain hope because in the gospel... Death itself, the crusher of all hopes, was defeated. Like every hope you could ever hope in this life, it's going to end at your own death. Or if you hope in other people, when they die. Like if your hope in life is your children, what happens when your child dies? I have no hope. If your hope is in stuff, possessions, more stuff, better stuff, nicer stuff, 
And you get there and those possessions either don't satisfy you or they fail you or they're taken away from you. What do you do? Well, I have no hope because I lost my stuff. Or if your hope is in yourself, that you're going to be better, do better, think better, work better. I'm going to, you know, be more fit, be more trim. Whatever my hope is in myself, ultimately, what do you do when yourself lets you down again and again and again? You lose hope. When we lose hope, we despair. But if we have the hope of the gospel, that's fixed. That's finished. That happened in history. It's news that's good, no matter how bad the news that we could get tomorrow could be. About anything else you could possibly hope in. Jesus defeated death, and Jesus paid for your sins. Your worst enemies, sin, death, and the devil have been defeated forever by the gospel. That's why the gospel is the best of all news to receive. And finally, we have a gospel we can stand on. When you go to work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or whatever you do with your time during the day, you can stand on the good news of the gospel. Okay, You can stand on it. It will support your life and your eternity. The worst things that you have ever done in your life, or that you could ever do, have been paid for and forgiven by Christ. You can rest, rest on the gospel. You can receive his forgiveness. You can ask him to forgive you. You can quiet your heart before him. And the worst thing that could ever happen to you, the worst thing that could ever be done to you, death itself, has been defeated by your Christ, who is alive. His tomb is open. You don't have to fear any pain or suffering if the worst thing that could happen to you has been conquered. Jesus went before you. He swallowed fear itself. And when you have a real hard conversation with somebody, or you're dreading a hard conversation with somebody, you can stand on the good news of the gospel. How do you stand on the gospel in that moment? How do you let it support you? How do you rest in it? Well, if Jesus paid for all your sins, all your mistakes, all your failures, you are free from God's condemnation. You don't need to be afraid of the condemnation or the words of other people. You didn't do enough. You didn't say enough. You didn't say it right. You hurt me. You failed me. You let me down. You were bad. You know, the heart that is standing on the gospel can say, I might not agree with everything you're saying, but I know I'm a sinner. And I'm standing right now on the gift of God to me in Christ, the grace of Jesus, that even though I hurt you, I know I am loved. And I am sorry that I failed, but Jesus loved me. Or maybe you didn't do anything wrong, and you're being condemned for what you didn't do. 
Jesus was as well. And his love can be a rock of refuge for you that you can run to again and again and again and stand on and cling to. He will not forsake you or leave you. He is with you. Let's pray. Lord, I ask right now that the the good news of the gospel would be something that we cling to and that we stand on today, tomorrow, throughout the week. That this news that the worst that can ever happen to us, death, separation from God, won't because of the gospel. And the worst thing we could ever do sins, the worst that we've ever done has been painful because of the gospel. And I pray that we would steady our hearts in this news. That it would fly like a banner over our lives in a bad news world. May we be truly humbled by the gift of Christ and hopeful for the life to come. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen.